Welcome to the Flux Capacitor Podcast, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of the Canadian Electricity Association. Flux is a noun meaning energy in a state of change. Capacitor is a noun, a device used to store an electric charge. Flux capacitor, of course, is the device that enabled time travel in Back to the Future, but it's also our new podcast, featuring discussions on the future of the business of electricity and the impacts of technological change and market transformation. We will be featuring discussions with the industry's business leaders, thought leaders, new market players, and stakeholders that have been pondering the future of how we create, move, trade, and use electricity, and what the future changes will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. We will also spotlight recent news and bring you news and different voices from the CEA team. Our featured discussion on this inaugural podcast is with the president and CEO of Nova Scotia Power, Karen Hutt. But before we get to our discussion, Michael Powell, Government Relations Director here at CEA, joins me to talk about recent stories that caught his eye. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Francis. We would be remiss on something called the flux capacitor not to talk about flying cars. Recently, Bloomberg magazine had a a whole piece on looking at how Japan's uh, ministry that looks at economic diversification and innovation, the same people that brought us Prius and and, and Walkmans, is now has a a deep dive into flying cars, uh, thinking about how it can drive the future. Obviously, it's a a country with traffic issues, but also where there's a real opportunity to grow the kind of business that Japan has been tangentially involved in, but not necessarily the lead on. Flying cars. You know, the news has been filled recently with all of these stories of uh, scares around uh, airports because of, of, uh, of drones flying about. Uh, do they do they deal with any of those issues? The potential of a little bit, of a the, lot more, a lot more things in the air floating about. The, the moonshot, which they they think of as medium term, is to have a flying car light the torch at the Tokyo Olympics in 2020. Ah, That's a, okay. a lot closer than medium term, I think. But beyond just uh, transitioning from a country that builds lots of airplane parts to builds that builds airplanes, the concern is how do you regulate these things? That already we have a hard enough time figuring out the rules of the road, but with uh, things flying, there's an added level of complexity and safety that gets in the way of, of where things are. And much like in our sector, there's a, a conversation that has to be had about where the edge of innovation uh, begins and where reasonable concerns about how you manage that change uh, end. <laughs> It always comes back to regulation, doesn't it? It does. But, you know, I think we've been talking about this uh, since well before my time. Uh, I, I'm, you know, usually optimistic about the future. I think I'm a, a healthy skeptic that we'll ever move around in the air. Uh, the, it seems that the solutions are probably a little more terrestrial than trusting ourselves to Yahoo's flying cars around and, and hoping for the best. Oh, if you saw that. That blog uh, I did last fall, you'll know that I've been waiting forever, ever since the Jetsons for the flying car, so I'd be happy if this comes through. Anything else catch your eye? Yeah, I think the a little more grounded in reality is is thinking about how we can use uh, existing infrastructure to generate electricity. And uh, Forbes, uh, uh, sorry, Discover Magazine, had uh, a look at some of the technologies that are changing that can take advantage of things like windows on buildings or the flow of water in the pipes to generate power. The films that can be painted onto the inside of, of 
building windows have long been available that can generate some amount of electricity, but they've come with issues in the past, including a, a, a weird tint that would just make it a little odd to have, right to uh, adding heat to the room, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to generate power only to have to air condition the space with it. But new technologies uh, balance that a little more and may actually keep out the UV rays that make things or make buildings cooler. So the glass facade of all those shiny towers that are built in places like Toronto and New York and, and elsewhere could one day be generating a little bit of power and adding directly to the grid. You know, it, it's interesting, Michael. I, I was uh, um, on the website of Plug and Drive, uh, our, our, our one of our partners, uh, plugandrive.ca, uh, and uh, they list all of the electric vehicle um, cars that are available for sale in Canada. And the one at the very top of the list in terms of price is a very, very high-end uh, luxury uh, electric car that's now available. And the roof is a solar panel. <laughs> that um, uh, that it slowly because it you know it, it would take a long time to charge the entire car but it does uh, recharge the batteries um, through the solar panels while the car is parked. Well, and if you think about what the future looks like, we get uh, sun in through the day. Uh, through windows, but perhaps if that power could also be harnessed to power the lights at night or the elevators, then you could look to uh, a very different definition of what a carbon neutral or a, an electricity neutral building might be. The other thing that cities are thinking about is how we can use resources that we already pay to keep pressure on. So, uh, you know, hydropower is basically uh, turbines being moved by the flow of water. Cities across the world spend a great deal of money making sure that we have water pressure so that we can have showers and wash our hands and do as you will, which means that water is flowing through pipes all the time. The opportunities there to leverage some of that to generate small amounts of electricity in a way that uh, we haven't thought of before. There's, of course, other things that flow through pipes that might also be an opportunity, but mm -hmm. those, this is a family podcast, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, thank you. Look forward to, uh, to future pod podcasts and, and uh, you're bringing uh, uh, your interesting news tidbits of stuff that may be uh, around the corner for us. Uh, so thanks very much for that. Thank you, Francis. Now on to the main event, my discussion with the president and CEO of Nova Scotia Power. Karen Hutt, Nova Scotia Power, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So I thought I'd start, Karen, on um, uh, environmental issues, uh, uh, because I know uh, they're, they're certainly uh, front and center uh, these uh, these days, and it's uh, the reason why uh, you and, and colleagues have been uh, in Ottawa uh, uh, this week. Um, but, you know, you're coming from an interesting place. You're coming from a from a province that, that went from, uh, you know, 9% to nearly 30%. Of renewables in the uh, in the past decade, mm -hmm. but the challenge, of course, is is still out there. What are you seeing as uh, as the the prospects of the future? Are we going to be able to meet the expectations that customers have, that governments have, uh, over the over the medium to long term on on the environment, and particularly on GHG emission reductions? Mm, it's a it's a good question. Uh, I think that um, I think if we're talking about Renewables, it, it we need to think about it in the broader context of of reducing carbon, and that really is what what we've been focused on, and and that has led in part to our investment in renewables. But it all begins with us f around this 
this significant transformation from from a generation fleet that was primarily fueled uh, by by uh, by fossil fuels for good reasons. It was an indigenous resource of, of of Nova Scotia's, and there were good policy reasons at the time of of why we moved in that direction. Uh, the, the you know the landscape's different today, mm-hmm. and so our customer expectations. And so it's really been a decade long journey that we've uh, under undertaken. And if you think about uh, a measure that we all understand, that's our 2030 measure nationally to, to reduce carbon output by 30% by 2030. Uh, you know, at this moment in Nova Scotia, we've already exceeded that target and we've been able to do it in a way that we have flexibly uh, continued to operate our thermal fleet. We've added renewables onto the system and we've been able to demonstrate to customers and to policymakers and to regulators that there's a way that you can systematically work your way through this transition uh, without overlooking customer affordability, which is central to us. So, so you've, you've- pretty much uh, achieved the 2030 targets already. We have. So what are you going to do in the next sort of so what's the next act going to be? Well, because you, you're you know you're you're only part way through a transformation that's going to lead to what? That's right. And and so if you look at the journey that we're on at this moment, which includes the continued use of our thermal fleet uh, essentially to the end of their useful lives, mm-hmm. uh, we have a plan that would by 2030 uh, have us almost double our target. So you get into an interesting conversation around how much overcompliance is too much. Right. And and for us the barometer around that has to be customer affordability. Mm-hmm. And so as long as we can 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 address that issue in in a way that is responsive to our customers and still allow us to overachieve, then I think that's perfectly fine because I also do think that the social license will continue to the bar will continue to get higher and higher and that customers voters, citizens, we all want a cleaner environment. Mm -hmm. And companies are not going to get credit for making clean Mm -hmm. investments because those are going to be cost of entry, meeting expectations. And that's how we view it. And so, yes, while we're on a path to to well exceed the target, we believe that we need to work to the next tranche of, of customer expectations around social license and the kind of environment that we want in the future. So there's always... In your view, this, that, that bar is going to be continued. We're not going to be at a point where we'll be able to say, "Okay, we're done. We're finished. We've 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 uh, we've we've hit all, all of our targets from a from an environmental and a social perspective." And, uh, <laughs> and I don't think so because no I think a, I think the world's going to keep changing, keep changing and, and yeah. technology is going to help change that for us. But um, I, I also think that uh, you know how we define our interaction with customers in the future will continue to change. I do think, you know, when we talk about this concept of 100% renewables, I haven't found anybody yet who can kind of sign up for that. Mm-hmm. And even in jurisdictions where, you know, they would they would be the boldest in that thinking, places like California and Hawaii, uh, there there is a sustained role for a long time for something like natural gas in the system because mm-hmm. until we can really crack the code on a, on a new um, utility scale 
battery composition. Right. Storage will be the and key. Storage. Yeah. Until we can really figure that out, yeah. we need baseload supply. That's why we have, you know, coal plants running in Nova Scotia at this moment mm -hmm. because we have 600 megawatts of wind on a system of 2,400 and there's days that we get zero output from, from right. that wind. So when the wind doesn't blow, we don't have grid scale storage. Exactly. So I was going to ask you about, um, you know, people that have been suggesting that we need to move to a 100% a uh, non-GHG emitting system and whether or not that's feasible. So so the key the key is going to be storage, it sounds like. Absolutely. That's the it's only way we'll storage. be able to do it. And it can be, it, it can be new technology storage. It can be, it can be hydro. Mm -hmm. It can be, you know, there's different forms of storage, but there's no question that we need some kind of ability to smooth out the intermittent output that, that wind and solar is always going to produce for us. Right. Just to shift gears for a little bit, um, and I want to talk a little bit about regulation because it, I know it's a, a topic near and dear to your heart as well, uh, and it's one that, that, that we've talked a lot about um, at CEA. Um, I, I noted that, that um, Nova Scotia Power has been installing vehicle charging, uh, vehicle charging network, um, uh, but it's without ratepayer funding. Mm -hmm. um, how did that happen, and, and, and does it suggest that there's something wrong with how we've framed our... our our regulatory uh, 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 regimes? Well, uh, first of all, I don't think that it says that there's anything wrong. I think what it does say is that it's time to modernize. If you think about the regulatory construct we operate in in Nova Scotia, we have an Electricity Act that was written in 1989. Mm -hmm. And so certainly no one was thinking about electric vehicles and, and charging infrastructure at that time. So I think more it's an opportunity to modernize to reflect where we are today. And that was one of the reasons why we went through the process that we did was because we had, you know, a real live demonstration of the need to mm -hmm. address this. In the meantime, we had this fantastic opportunity to work with Enercan and uh, who were able to support us from a funding perspective. And so we looked at it actually through a pure customer lens and we said, well, customers want us to do that. And we believe that they did. And so we were able to get our shareholder support to be able to move ahead on this mm -hmm. over time. Time, there will be a revenue source that will collect through through the usage. It's 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 uh, it's you know it's over an extended period of time. But we did it because we felt it was important to send a message to our customers to say we are thinking about the future, and and we do believe that if we want to move the needle on electrification and the transportation sector is really what is going to be able to do that, mm -hmm. if we can be part of the enabler in that by putting a little bit of infrastructure on the ground, we're happy to do that, but we're also happy for others to come in. It's really about getting it there and allowing customers to decide how quickly they want to move through the transition than us trying to build up a bunch of assets around um, charging infrastructure. Sure. So, um, and this is this has been another topic that, that's been discussed uh, recently as well with respect to the the um, uh, the regulatory framework and the regimes. Uh, I, I, I appreciate the fact that, you know, you're pointing to legislation that was written last century. Let's, I mean, Mm -hmm. That was that was quite some time ago, uh, and that might be one of the newer regulatory regimes across the country. So the the issue is is it's not uh, the regulators; it's the in the, uh, the the regime within which they're operating. And so, um, 
What's going to have to change in that regulatory framework as you sort of cast your mind to the future and, and how um, the industry is going to transform? What are the, the, the things that the new regulatory regimes are going to have to take into consideration so that, so that they'll, they'll be able to actually add value to the, to the mm-hmm. process and not be an, an impediment potentially? Yeah, I, I think this is where it's it's the policymakers that can make the change, because that's where it needs to come from. Uh, I, I worry that that the regulators uh, are sometimes you know villainized in these mm-hmm. conversations, and um, you know we have to respect the fact that they're using the tools that that um, that they're given today, and that. Um, you know, as regulated utilities, we want them to be prudent in how they apply those tools, and we frankly want them to be conservative. Uh, we know that that, you know, creates better outcomes for customers. And so it's, uh, this, isn't, this isn't the regulator's problem to solve necessarily. They have an important voice in this because mm-hmm. they're thinking about the future as well. They understand the changes that are coming. But we, we need to start to collectively think about a new world where we're not simply looking at, you know, an accumulation of rate base through putting more steel in the ground, which Mm -hmm. is historically how we have assessed whether or not projects are in the public interest for us to proceed. We have to think about um, technology and innovation and how do we dip our toe in the water in a way that starts to let us understand can you demonstrate sustained customer value through a new way of doing things and if you can then we need the regulatory support to do that so one aspect that I'm a big proponent of is performance-based rate making okay. and I think that if if utilities are confident enough to hold themselves accountable to performance and to outcomes, then the trade for that should be less rigorous oversight. Look at the outcomes. Mm-hmm. So it's not about taking it away, and it's not about uh, anybody stepping back on their their oversight accountabilities, but it is looking at outcomes mm-hmm. and saying, if we can achieve this, then that should mean something. It shouldn't mean more burden, more regulatory right. oversight. It should mean more license to move ahead because yeah. we know that we're serving our customers the right way. So if you look around uh, in other jurisdictions, um, uh, you know, New York with uh, Rev comes to mind, uh, but, you know, there are other examples elsewhere. Are, are there lessons that we can learn uh, from from what other jurisdictions are attempting to do to renew their regulatory frameworks? Um, and, and, you know, are there, are there specific ones that, that you've been keeping an eye on? Yeah. I, so, I, look, I wouldn't stop in North America. I would look globally because the, the trends that we are grappling with in Canada are the exact same trends all across the globe. And we've done that work and we've, and we've tried to understand, you know, where are the jurisdictions that are starting to get this right? You know, there's, you know, there's some interesting work happening in Australia. There's some interesting work happening in the UK. Uh, and then, of course, you're Right, uh, south of the border. So we don't need to reinvent the wheel here. And I think that that is a good model for us overall from a Canadian perspective as we think about regulatory reform and why it matters. It's about Canada being competitive mm-hmm. and it's about being able to attract capital to Canada in a way that that investors feel comfortable, that they understand the regulatory process, that they feel certainty, that 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 there are outcomes uh, through, through a process that everyone can understand. 
and we need to do better at that. We know that we're lagging behind. So there's lots of other countries who are doing this really well. Let's look at them. Yeah. Take a page out of their book so we can move quickly on this. So uh, the, the, the regulatory burden you would see as, a, as an impediment now to our, uh, to our prosperity? Our no question. Yeah. No question. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. It's, uh, you know, the work that we see every day at the ground level. But if we look at what, you know, the impact of that is on an, on a national scale, mm-hmm. uh, we know through some of the work through the economic strategy tables and, and others yep. that that is a key barrier today that we need to somehow solve because because there is there are too many other places where capital can go at this moment and it will go to jurisdictions where there's certainty mm-hmm. that it can deliver a return to its investor and that is a very sensible realistic expectation we're not delivering on that today we need to get better at that okay can we talk a little bit about Nova Scotia power and mm-hmm. and where it fits in the North American electricity system because it it fits very differently today than it would have Five or ten years ago, five or ten years ago, uh, your your system was sort of it was sort of the the end of the trunk line of mm. the system. Things stopped there, and now uh, now Nova Scotia is in the middle of a loop. Um, and so, how's that changing the business today? And how's how's that going to change the business in the future? Well, it's certainly transformative transformative from a from a regional point of view. And what you're talking about is the Maritime Link, and that is the subsea cable that now connects uh, the province of Nova Scotia to to the province of Newfoundland. And it actually does now allow Nova Scotia to be part of a North American loop, mm-hmm. which didn't really exist before. Uh, we have an existing uh, connection with New Brunswick, which has been and continues to be very, very important. But this allows for one more way for uh, electricity to move throughout the regions. Mm-hmm. And we all know that the more options that we can create for our customers, the better served they are, mm-hmm. the better prices we can deliver to them, uh, better reliability, all of those things. So it's an incredibly important project. Uh, the the link is is now you know operating mm-hmm. and uh, we're beginning to to move energy back and forth between Nova Scotia and and Newfoundland and as the Muskrat Falls project comes online over the the next year year and a half uh, then we'll we'll be actively moving that um, that output across the link because that will that will supply a major portion of of generation to Nova Scotia and it will actually allow us from taking our our output today of about 25 or 29% renewable mm-hmm. to 40% renewable. Right. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so um, when you when you sort of cast your mind out into the future to 2040, 2050 um, would you see greater regional integration? Would you see are we going to see more connections, more subsea cables? Um, what 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 may that look like um, I, I, twenty or thirty years? From yeah, now? I hope so. I yeah. hope so. You know, if you if you think about it from from just a, a pure numbers perspective in Nova Scotia, we um, we need to replace twelve hundred megawatts mm-hmm. of of thermally based generation. And so that means there's a whole portfolio that we need to develop over time, doing it in the right way. Uh, again, making sure that affordability is central to all of this. So we're, 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 that's never far from our minds. But 
we know that as we continue to transform the energy landscape, we need more transmission. Right. Uh, certainly, east-west uh, corridors are, are something that, that I'm glad to hear that we're all now talking about uh, from a national point of view. And uh, north-south, I mean, you know, that's mm-hmm. been a really important corridor for us for for years. And so we need more of that. Uh, we need to develop more, you know, renewable resources. Solar is obviously wouldn't be a surprise to anybody. It's never going to be a, a great resource for us in Nova Scotia. Right. It will form part of the portfolio, but mm-hmm. it's not going to be the game changer for us. Will tidal be a game changer in the future? It's a good question. It should be. Uh, yeah. By all accounts, it should be. It's an incredible resource mm-hmm. and uh, predi- predictable. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, <laughs> um, yes. But, uh, you know, except that we know from the trial work that we've done, uh, we're a long way from understanding the real commercial viability mm-hmm. of tidal. And so, you know, will that evolve over time? We sure hope so. Uh, and and, um, and wind. I mean, we have, uh, we might not, you know, mm-hmm. have vast hydro resources, but we have a fantastic wind resource mm-hmm. in Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. So we would love to be able to develop more wind. We can't do that without more capacity to be able to support that, to follow that. Right. So we think about that as the collective picture, but there's a lot that will continue to happen to transform, I think, not just our region, but but all of us who are, are making that transition from, from you know, coal and thermally-based mm-hmm. uh, resources to more renewable-based. So as we go through that transformation and as we, uh, as we see potentially more regional integration, what does that do to the traditional vertically integrated utility? Are we going to see more, for example, potentially disaggregation, more specialization, um, you know, more, more companies that are going to become pure players, either uh, as transmission uh, grid companies uh, or, or, or generation companies, or is the, is the future, um, you know, the, the uh, A to Z uh, vertically integrated company? It's well, isn't that the question we're all mm-hmm. asking? And uh, as a vertically integrated company, as a vertically integrated, <laughs> yeah, you know, I I think we have to all acknowledge that that the landscape is going to change and the business model is going to change, and that um, we as as vertically integrated utilities we need to adapt to that, and and so part of it is making sure that we understand where customers want us to be going. The other part of it is taking care of our own housekeeping, making sure that we're really getting our arms around cost control and driving flexibility into our business models because we're going to need that to to compete going forward. I do think when you look at what customers' motivations are to develop, you know, distributed energy resources, for example, it's, it's not because you know, customers are sitting around thinking about, well, how can I power my own electricity needs? Oftentimes, the motivation is they think that they can do it less expensively Mm -hmm. than what they're receiving today or with more choice. And so I think as a sector, we have an ability to respond to that customer desire uh, in a way that delivers them the product that they want uh, which is, you know, a, a more localized form of generation. It could be something that they have more mm-hmm. control, something that they get rewarded uh, by, you know, if they adapt their behavior, there's there's a direct line reward for that. Right. So yeah. different tariff structures that we can design. I do believe that 
having centralized control of the system, wherever the resources sit, mm -hmm. having centralized control is imperative. Because when things go wrong, which the other side of, of the, the, the discussion on this is a changing weather regime mm -hmm. and climate adaptation, mm -hmm. when you think about the need to control the system uh, to deliver reliability in the way that customers want it, um, however the grid manages to unfold and whoever happens to participate in it, we need to have a way that it all ties back to one central view of how we manage the resources. Right. Because that will be the way to deliver reliability to customers. And our, our, working, uh, our working, you know, belief at this point is that customers want to be always on. Mm -hmm. They will not tolerate mm -hmm. outages in mm -hmm. the future. And so how do we do that? I think having centralized control is important of that. And the last point on this is we can't overlook the value of scale that utilities can bring to these equations. We can build things less expensively than, than, than what we've seen certainly in some of the IPP sector around wind. Right. And so if this is a question about truly delivering the lowest cost option to customers in a way that they want it, we have we have a running chance to be very very uh, relevant in the future, mm -hmm. but it's going to take some change. It's interesting. Um, this and 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 quite a few of the other questions um, that uh, that we started uh, started with at the very beginning. Um, you you lead with the customer. Um, um, uh, I, I'm assuming that's one of the core values of the company. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, how how important uh, are core values to, to kind of driving your business? Hugely important. And, you know, our view as a company is, first and foremost, there is nothing more important than safety. Yeah. Uh, there is not a single thing that we do in the business that is more important than that. The close second is our customer. Mm -hmm. And um, the way that we operate is that, uh, you know, if we create value for our customers, we will create value as a business. Mm -hmm. And, you know, long are the days that you felt like you need to make choices between customers and shareholders. Our view is that's, 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 an, outdated, uh, that's an outdated way of looking at things. And if you do the right thing for your customers, that will take care of what you need to do for your shareholders. Right. And, and that philosophy really does ripple its way through the entire business. And, you know, the interesting thing is everybody's throwing around this utility of the future concept. And when you step back and you say, well, what does that really mean mm -hmm. when we say that? What does that really mean? No question. There's the technology component. There's, there's you know, all of those new pieces. But fundamental is, is being responsive to your customer. Right. Lots of other segments have gotten that a long time ago. Mm -hmm. and, and that's how they, that's how they survive and compete today. That is admittedly a bit of a newer concept in, in, in some hallways of, of our <laughs> sector. Um, you know, what I'm really proud of is the work that I see every day at Nova Scotia Power and thinking about our customer first is in our DNA. Mm -hmm. And so making this transition from at least that perspective of change is really easy right. because the foundation's already there. Yeah. Well, um, <clears throat> I wanted to uh, circle uh, back to one of uh, the, the things that you were previously doing uh, at the association, 
um, you were you were heading up our uh, National Emerging Issues Committee, mm-hmm. uh, and one of the things that uh, that that committee came up with under under your guidance, uh, under your leadership, were a uh, um, series of uh, scenarios of what the future may look like, mm-hmm. and I, I thought one of the interesting things that came out of that work was the identification by by uh, your committee um, of you know the game changers of the future, and one of them was unknown um, some black swan something that we we haven't anticipated yet will be a game changer of the future which i, I thought was i thought was uh, interesting mm-hmm. but, but i wonder um if there is something out there um that that you might think may be an emerging game changer that, that we haven't been paying attention to yet it's uh, a good question and you know, the whole point of doing the scenario work was not to try to land or get consensus on what the future was going to look like, but create worlds that were different enough mm-hmm. that you could stress test your strategy against, which is really the value of, of scenarios. And you're right. We did talk about the unknown, which I actually really appreciated that the yeah. committee wanted to go there because the, I think that's reflective of the kind of open mind mindedness that that people brought to those conversations. Um, you know, I I worry about I worry about cybersecurity a lot, and um, y- you know, even just to get caught up. To where we need to be from a, from a readiness point of view is is years of work, right. millions of dollars of investment, and a draw on resources that are that are scarce and not enough mm-hmm. to meet all of our needs. So I worry about about that kind of materializing in a way before we have any real capability to respond to it, and I do worry about weather. I, I do right. worry about weather that that um, weather in terms of changing weather the changing, changing yeah, weather yeah. and and the intensity of that weather mm-hmm. and and how we're going to be able to cope with that we're we're looking at jurisdictions now who you know we're you know are we going to let utilities go bankrupt because mm-hmm. of because of mm-hmm. weather effects and yeah. those become very real questions when you look at some of the things that are happening now um, and so. The other big unknown is, yeah, you know, are we ever gonna going to really get to a point where you know we're using our wires as as energy highways mm-hmm. and we're blockchaining and mm-hmm. we're doing all that sort of stuff? Like, I I think that yes, we will probably get there at some point in the future. We are we are a long way from yeah. being able to step into that. Well, um, the, the quick segue to just the, the, the final segment here. Uh, you mentioned weather and changing weather. Um, so when you go to the airport later today, uh, and if your flight gets delayed, and you reach into your carry-on bag to pull out the book that you're reading, what book is that? What's the book that you're reading right now? Well, I just finished reading Becoming by Michelle Obama, ah. which I completely loved. Okay. And uh, and uh, before that, I read Fear by Bob Woodward. So, <laughs> so there's a theme. Um, but uh, yeah, just finished becoming, and I thought it was um, I thought it was excellent. So if you haven't read it, I would I would encourage it. Okay. And then finally, um, when uh, when when you get up in the morning to get ready for your day, make sure you're prepared. Uh, you you uh, boot up your computer, you turn on your your iPad. 
what are the places, what are the sources that you go to first to make sure that you are up to speed to start your day at Nova Scotia Power? Where do you, what are your, what are your sources of information to, to, to get you ready for the day? That's an easy one. I check our outage map every single morning as ah, soon as I get up. Okay. <laughs> Terrific. Karen, thank you very much for participating in the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. My name is Sarah Nolan, and I am the Government Relations Manager here at the Canadian Electricity Association. So the National Line Worker Appreciation Day is a day in which um, we'll recognize uh, line workers who work so hard in all of our communities to supply electricity to our schools, our homes, our small businesses, you know, the backbone you know, of our Canadian economy um, and keeps everything moving. So establishing a day that recognizes those that put their lives on the line each and every day to secure our grids and provide that reliability, you know, is just one step further in recognizing all the contributions that they make to our economy and the safety that they provide to our communities. So we're trying to establish a July 10th of each and every year as a National Line Worker Appreciation Day. And we're working with the federal government and all parliamentarians from all political parties to try to, to get this day established. July 10th was chosen. It aligns with the already federally established day in the United States, July 10th. It also coincides with the Edison Electric Institute's recognized day. A lot of our utility members in Canada work on both sides of the border, both in Canada and the U.S., and some of which already recognize National Line Worker Appreciation Day in Canada with their workers. So this is just a day, July 10th, to create more of that unity for our North American grid. Uh, so we're getting actually a really positive response. We had a petition that we released and um, we actually have about over 3,000 signatures. That petition is now just working its way through the approval process. We pulled on a bunch of other stakeholders. We've gotten positive response back from the Canadian uh, uh, Police Association, the Canadian Firefighters Association, other um, electricity associations such as ESA and other local ones as well. So there seems to be a broad response that's not just within the electricity community, but also in the public safety community as well. So I think it really attests to the, not necessarily the need for this day, but the strength behind the day in supporting our workers. The response that we're getting from government, we have, so our, the petition that we have released is, was sponsored by an NDP MP, Daniel Blakey. So the timeline for this, if all goes well and as hoped, is that in February, mid to late February, early March, we should have some type of MP. We should have an MP on board to support a National Line Worker Appreciation Day in either a private member's bill or a motion. And best case scenario, everything will get approved and sent through, um, hopefully with unanimous consent, before June of this year. And then we will celebrate it annually, including this year as well. We hope you enjoyed our inaugural episode, and please tune in for future discussions. Our next episode will feature a discussion with Peter Gregg, the President and CEO of Ontario's Independent Electricity System Operator. 
Peter and I talk about grid transformation, stranded assets, new technologies, and emerging threats. I hope you will download it and invite you to continue the Electricity Conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca. Thank you.